it's kind of like, what else can I possibly go through? And then life is just like, uh, you have no idea, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the mental health podcast where imperfect people have imperfect conversations. I am going to make this super quick because my life is very full lately, which is great, but also um, I'm starting at a new job. I just wrapped up my first semester back in school. A lot of other stuff that I want to talk about yet, but um, I'm keeping myself pretty busy and I'm finding that I have less time for the podcast than I hoped I would. But the good news is I am working on a lot of stuff for y'all. I, of course, am going to have my holiday episode coming up soon where I give out the Hot and Spicy Pickle Awards to all guests of the last year and just reflect on the growth I've made this past year, which is really crazy when I think about it, but also just the all the changes that have happened with the podcast, which I don't think I give myself enough credit for. But um, I won't talk about that now. That'll be another episode. I'm at my parents' house yet again. I, I feel like every time I record now, it's at their house because uh, they have free coffee and it's quiet. There's no cats to interrupt my recording. And honestly... I grew up the oldest of seven, and so now that I finally live close to them in my, I almost said early 30s, I'm not even 30 yet, what am I saying? But um, anyway, I feel like this is what it's like to be an only child, and it's kind of rad. So I come over here quite a lot. Hello, sorry, I'm Christina, your host, I forgot to say that. See, I'm all over the place. Um, This episode is going to be a two-parter. I talk with my friend Eli about um, a lot of trauma she's faced in her life, namely the loss of her fiancé a few years back. But when I started recording with her, I realized that this story had a lot more to it than quote-unquote just uh, the loss that she had. There's a lot of stuff she went through even before meeting her fiancé that had to do with loss in a different way and she's gone through a lot and wanted to talk about it on my podcast so when I started talking to her I realized that there was a lot more to her story than met the eye and that I really wanted to take my time sharing it so today part one is just going to be her talking about her earlier life and the events that led her to meeting this person that would become her fiance. And then next episode, she's going to get more into the details about her fiance's diagnosis and end of life care and how it affected her, obviously, but also the people around her and the way that she handles relationships moving forward. And it's it's really sad, obviously, but it's also a beautiful story of human connection in so many different ways. And I'm going to leave it right there and let y'all get to know Eli through this interview. Uh, Like I said, this intro is super short because I'm trying to run to the store before it gets too late and get some errands done because uh, I I was meaning to edit here for a few hours. But what happened was I ended up falling asleep and having nightmares about Benadryl. (laughs) I I could elaborate more, but I won't. 
if you're an addict, you get it. It's, it's like having the dreams where you lose control of a car or when you black out and kill somebody. Like, I don't know if normal people have these dreams, but as an addict, even an, an addict in recovery, I have these dreams all the time where I, I think that I've relapsed and done something unforgivable and uh, I get really, really scared that I've ruined up my <laughs> ruined up my life, that I've ruined my life, and then I wake up and I feel really out out of it. So that's why I'm kind of rushing through this so I can put that behind me and have some fun times tonight. So, with that said, I love y'all. Thank you for bearing with me through the craziness that is the end of 2021. What a year it's been, I'll tell you what. Uh, We'll talk about it more in future episodes, but for now, here is Eli. I hope you all have a safe week. And don't forget, I'm looking for tips on how to survive the holidays when you are dealing with mental health issues. I'm also looking for recommendations for movies in particular, but it could be anything really that are holiday themed, but have a mental health aspect to it. Uh, For instance, my aunt recommended It's a Wonderful Life. And I don't know how many of y'all have seen it, but it's a really old movie about a man who reaches the point of suicide and then uh, an angel comes down and shows him what his life would be like if he had never been born. It's very classic, very emotional. I hadn't really thought about it, though, when I first put out the call for mental health holiday movies but that's a great one um keep sending me your recommendations because i want to do a whole episode about holidays and mental illness so um not just survival tips but things that you've realized about yourself maybe or what are some of the ways that the holidays are going to be different this year than they were last year um a lot of us have obviously struggled a lot and things are quite different than they looked like last year or even the year before that. I mean, yeah, I won't go into it, but just send me your stories. I already have quite a few that I'm going to read on that episode. Can't have too many. All right, here is Eli and enjoy. So again, welcome to Pickles and Vodka. Thank you so much for bearing with my craziness over the past few weeks. Of course. (laughs) It's been a shit show. Um, I mean, it kind of always is. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, we're here and that's all that matters. And I, I'm loving the picture. I'm assuming it's your cat, your profile yes. picture. That's my cat, Piper. I've had her for just over a year now. And she is still just as angry as the first day I got her. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't really want to mess with her. Like, she is a very, like, she does not like being held. And she just is, like, in general, a very angry cat. I respect that. (laughs) She used to be feral. So like she was like a completely like stray cat. So I think like she just never learned to be around like people or like how to be like normal. So she's just like, she barely tolerates me and does not like anybody else. (laughs) What does normal even mean? Exactly. Uh, That's a good segue into the first uh, part of our conversation where I want to get to know you a little bit. Of course. So a little bit about me. Um, My name is Eli. I'm 30 years old, just turned 30 in September. Congrats. (laughs) You're one year older than me. Um, (laughs) How does it feel to be on the other side? It feels nice, but it's also kind of like a little bit 
like I feel like the weight of society being like you know you're 30 you're basically dead if you're a woman so kind of (laughs) expectation um but it's also kind of nice because my 20s were just awful all around so I'm looking forward to hopefully having more of my life together in my 30s but we'll see yeah, it's kind of like, what else can I possibly go through? And then life is just like, uh, you have no idea, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's just like, you know, I really hope that it, it can't get worse from here. Is what I tell myself. And then, you know, it Lock all... on wood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so you're 30 and you live in New York City. Yes, I live in Brooklyn. I am a special education teacher. I'm currently teaching in a middle school and that's about it really nice Uh, how long have you lived there are you from there so i'm from maryland originally and i grew up in maryland i went to school in maryland um i moved to new york in 2014 um i joined teach for america because when i was in undergrad i studied like linguistics and russian and then i like i graduated and i was like wait i can't do shit with this degree (laughs) (laughs) Then Teach for America was like, come teach for us. Come save the children. And I was like, I will save the children. And then I was like, shit, this is really fucking hard. I'll save them in Russian. It was so like, I I was in so over my head those first few years I was teaching. Dude, working with kids is so hard. It's, It's fucking awful. And like, I was a terrible teacher my first few years. And I could talk so much about like those like alternative certification programs where like you start teaching before you have like a teaching degree. Because like I walked in the classroom on the first day, just like, I am the white savior. I'm going to save the children. And then it just like (laughs) went downhill from there. What could go wrong? It was, it was just, it was bad. Do you feel like you've gotten some good experience under your belt now and it's a little easier? Oh, for sure. So, um, like I got tenured by the time I was like 25. Damn. I got my master's degree. Um, my principal actually just asked me if I would take on a student teacher this spring. So I'm going to be like teaching another teacher this spring. So that's going to either go very well or very poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it could go either way, honestly. It's it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, exactly. And then also, like, if you get along with the other person or not, because, like, there's so many different ways to, like, collaborate with other people. So yeah. the whole idea of, like, having a student teacher is, like, by the end of the semester, like, they are the one teaching your class. And, like, my classes oh. this year are, like, popping. So I'm just like, <laughs> God bless. <laughs> Good luck. I feel like that's a good way to improve in your own job, though, is to teach it to someone else. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Yeah. Um, Okay. so why don't you just tell me in a nutshell what you wanted to talk about today? Because I don't really know how to like segue into it. I think you should just just jump right in. Sure. So um, (laughs) basically, um, I remember that we had a conversation about um, my late fiance, who actually um, tomorrow would have been his 40th birthday. Dude, I saw that. Yeah. That's that's so crazy. Like the timing of this is like very interesting that it worked out this way. Um, So I was in a relationship with the person that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I had known him for a very good amount of time. We met when I was about 21 years old and he was 31. So there was like a pretty big age difference there. 
but um, we started dating when I was 25. He was 35 and he ended up at getting a um, terminal cancer when he was 30. Um, I'm not good at math. Wow. My brain just like flatlined. I'm not either. It's okay. <laughs> so no, well, didn't you say, I think in my message, um, I said something about like the number 26 pops out at me. Like, is that how old? Yeah. So um, he was, he was 36 when he passed away and oh, okay. Yeah. And I was 26. And so we started dating when I was 23 or 24, actually, and then I think I was 25 when he was diagnosed and then he passed when I was 26. So it happened like wow. really, really quickly. I can't even imagine. And so he had colon cancer and it was stage four. And for most people that have heard of colon cancer, like that happens for mostly like men in their 60s and 70s. So for it to mm-hmm. happen to a guy in his 30s is like unheard of. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a sick joke or something. It really is. And the whole experience I had with like having a partner um, go through um, chemotherapy, going through the whole process of like end of life care and putting him into hospice. And even in terms of like planning his funeral and like just thinking about like the end of his life basically. And it made me even think about for my own life and for other people, like we don't talk about death enough. It's one of the only things guaranteed everyone goes through. And yet it's still really scary to talk about. It's something that I feel like people are just kind of like they shy away from it so much because either of their own like fear of death or just like the stigma of like just I feel like there's just kind of like a stigma about like talking about death in any kind mm-hmm. of a way. I, I'm not even really sure why there is, but um, even in terms of like planning for one's own death, because like, um, so my partner's name, um, his name was Philip. He never let me call him Philip, like ever. <laughs> so, um, what did you call him? Um, I called him Fee, which is like H I. Yeah. Oh, so I called him Fee. And, um, so Fee like didn't have like any sort of like a will. He didn't have any sort of like plans for like how he like wanted his body to be taken care of or anything like that. So a lot of stuff, like, to be honest, was just like me and him, like hashing it out on like the hospice bed, <laughs> like oh my God. kind of like taking my word for it that like things would get done. The more you share, the more kind of insane this, the scope, like, I can't even talk about it. It's a lot to go through. Like you're not, you're not even married at this point, right? Yeah. So we were like, we were planning on getting married, um, that summer actually. So he passed away in February of 2018 and we were planning on getting married like that summer later on, depending on like how his treatment was going. Yeah. But he really just, um, he, he was diagnosed in the fall of 2017 and just like right away, they were like, this is stage four. We need to like to operate right away. You need to start chemotherapy and radiation right away. And he just like really didn't respond to it. He took the treatment like a champ. Like he had days I remember like where he would just like lay in bed and like literally could not even move Mm. and stuff like that just like takes it out of people. And I, I personally have a lot of experience like with, um, this sounds weird, but like with death and dying, I guess, because well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, um, my dad also had cancer and I was 14 when he was diagnosed and um, I was 16 when my dad passed away. 
my dad had um, a glioblastoma, which is like a special kind of brain tumor. Um, he lived for about two years, which is pretty rare with a glioblastoma because most people have like six months, roughly like with like a glioblastoma, if it's like stage three or four, um, because it's pretty aggressive for that form of cancer. Yeah. Wow. So you've experienced not one, but two, like kind of life shattering deaths due to terminal illness. Yeah. I can't imagine what that would do to you. Like, well, going back a little earlier, how did you and your family talk about death in the years prior to your dad's diagnosis? Oh, we just did not. (laughs) Okay. So even like before that, um, when I was about nine years old, um, my oldest half brother passed away. Oh man. Yeah. Um, he was 24 and he was in a car accident with my cousin and my cousin was like in his like late teens, early twenties, I think, but my cousin lived, he was in a coma for a while, but he lived. Um, yeah. And that created like a huge rift in the family where it was like, my brother died, my cousin lived. Um, and then that shaped a lot of like how my family talked, like my nuclear family, like how we talked about death, how we approached it. Um, my mom completely just shut down, um, because it was her son, like it was my half brother. So like we shared the same mom, we had different dads. So my mom just like completely shut down. She didn't talk about it. She became completely agoraphobic. Um, understandably. Yeah. Like she did not have like the appropriate outlets for coping with that kind of a loss, but also like she didn't seek help in the way that she should have. And she also like still to this day does not seek help in the ways that she should. Is there a reason for that? I, I'm not really sure. I want to say just because like she kind of has like a like a shame around seeking mm-hmm. help, like mental health. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of common in that generation. At least I found it to be the case. My mom's kind of similar. You think there's something wrong with you for seeking help, but... Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you get worse by not seeking help. And it's just like a kind of a cycle. Yeah, because my mom has like literally said before, like, oh, if I talk about like all the things I've been through, like it would break me. And I'm just like, if you don't talk about it, like that's even worse, I would think. Still, my heart goes out to her because I understand like the hesitation. Yeah. How did you as a nine year old feel when it happened? It really didn't hit right away, to be honest, because I I was so young. It also happened in like the spring of 2001. So 2001 was a popping year for me. Like that was a big God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sorry, bad joke there. But um, so, so yeah, um, I just, I really didn't quite understand what death was. So like my, my brother's name was Brian. So like, I knew that Brian was gone, but I really didn't understand like the indefinite nature of the fact that he was gone. Like Mm -hmm. that I would never see him again, that I wouldn't be able to talk to him again and like have him respond and things like that. And I didn't really have any coping mechanisms. So that's when I started to really learn like the unhealthy coping mechanisms that I have like struggled with my whole life with like, um, like binge eating and things like that, Mm -hmm. that like I kind of learned from also like my mom and like other people in my family. Just curious, does your family have a religious background or like, how did you, how did they teach you about death as an early child? 
my mom is just like generic Christian and my dad was raised Catholic, but neither of them really like, they didn't make me go to church or anything. And I'm Jewish. And that's because like fee was like, he had Jewish background in his family. And that's like a whole other story I can get into. So it's like, it's like <laughs> we'll a get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm just curious. Cause I know your childhood experiences can be so impacted by the beliefs that your family has and the beliefs that are, are put on you. Mm-hmm. But no, they never really talked about it. Like from the sense of like, Oh, like he's with Jesus or like, you'll see him again one day. It was never really like that. It was just like, he's always in your heart or like, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. Did you tell any of your friends? I remember like when I came back into, I was in fourth grade. I remember coming back into school the next, like the first day after his funeral and like my, my like classmates had made cards for me, but like they didn't know who died because like my mom didn't communicate correctly with the school. So it was like, sorry, your uncle died or <laughs> random shit like that. So she was just like, there's been a death in the family, but no, nothing else. Yeah. So the kids just like made up shit. It was like Mad Libs. But, like, cards. <laughs> oh my God. It's getting more and more confusing. Like it's already a confusing time for you, but I can imagine that just you had a lot of feelings happening. Yeah. And I'm like, I had a counselor at school and I had like a little grief workbook. I remember that I worked through and I was just kind of like, I remember personally feeling okay. Cause I, I was close to my brother, but um, he was living in Florida at the time. And like, I was in Maryland. And like, when I was little, like I lived with him, like in the same house, but it wasn't like, I saw him like every single day, kind of a thing. Right. I was going to ask that too, how close you were to him. Yeah. So like I, it wasn't like, um, it it still affected me, but it wasn't in the same kind of a way that if it was someone that I saw like every single day, kind of a thing. Right. So it was more like, I was more affected by like how my mom responded or like how my dad responded, if that makes sense. How did your dad respond? He mostly just like kept to himself and like kept quiet which is like how he responded to everything because like my parents were like polar opposites in that sense where it's like my mom is like hyper emotional and my dad was just like stoic. So how, how long after your brother's death did your dad receive his diagnosis? Um, about five years. Oh yeah. You were 14. You said, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So five years and my dad's diagnosis, um, It was a little bit of like a shock still, but like my dad was getting something called cluster migraines where it's like a pain behind your eyeball that's supposed to feel like an ice pick, which does not sound pleasant at all. (laughs) And um, he used to have to carry around like oxygen tanks. And like, that was the only thing that would help. Like when he got a migraine basically was like breathing like the pure oxygen. Oh my so God. Something was like, we knew something was wrong, but like, we didn't know what exactly. And then, um, just one day, like my dad was driving to work and, um, I remember like I was staying at school, like school late that day. And, um, my mom didn't come pick me up and my brother was staying late too. Um, and we were both just like, where the fuck is mom? And this is like before we had cell phones, right? <laughs> believe it or not, before we had cell phones, I um, remember the days and, um, one of my dad's coworkers, 
Um, I didn't even recognize him. I just knew it was like one of his coworkers because like he was wearing a hoodie that like had the same logo as like my dad's company. And he was like, hi, my name is Mark. Like, you have to come with me. And like right away, my brother and I were like, we're being kidnapped like, today. Yeah. Like, like, what the hell? And he like wouldn't tell us anything. But he was like, yeah, your mom's busy. So she told me to come pick you guys up. And I like looked at my brother and I was like, what should we do? And he's like, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> was this before the days where they required like a ton of documentation and stuff for for people to pick you up that weren't your parents? Yeah. And this was like, like podunk Maryland. So like, I'm just like waiting outside the school, like, what's up? Like in like a fucking field. So people yeah, didn't so get sketchy stuff. or, you know, s- so sus as the kids say yeah so apparently what happened was my dad was driving into work and like he scratched the entire side of his car into like um like a guardrail or something and didn't even notice and like his whole um his whole side mirror on the driver's side was gone didn't even notice and then he walks into the office completely fucking spaced out of it and someone asked him, like, my dad's name was David. They're like, David, like, who's the president? And he's like, Ronald Reagan. <gasps> and this was 2006. <laughs> right. And they're like, David, you have to go to the hospital right now. <laughs> Something oh is God. not good. I guess I, I don't. I mean, my grandparents, all four of them had cancer, but I wasn't really close to them at the time. And I don't know a lot about it. But I guess you don't really think of the symptoms being that immediately clear right from the start at least like i don't that seems really dramatic way to find out so with a glioblastoma it's because of the pressure it puts on the rest of the brain so like that's why he was all like whoop-de-whoop and like crashing his car and thinking reagan was president and so like for him it was completely normal it was almost like he had like dementia or something so like i went to the hospital later that day to go see him before he had surgery um, like he kept calling me Debbie, which is his sister's name. Oh, yikes. So stuff like that. So like the doctors, the way they explained it to me were like, he recognizes you, which is why he's calling you a name that he knows, but his brain is just mixing up the names. What was that like for you? It really fucking sucked. Like that was when I really like lost my sense of security in the world. And Mm -hmm. I... I mean, I, I was already pretty much like a parentified child from like a very young age in terms of having to raise myself Yeah, I feel and, that. Take, and like take care of my own needs from like a very young age. But my dad was the breadwinner in the family. So my mom didn't work when I was growing up. So knowing that this was like the one person that was like keeping a roof over my head and like paying for my food and stuff like that, it totally. really was terrifying to see him in this state. And you mentioned um, starting to use some negative like coping mechanisms when your brother died. Had you continued to use those throughout the years? Like, how did that develop? So I definitely did as my dad got sicker and sicker because all of my mom's attention like went to my dad, rightfully so, because like he had like his treatment plan and stuff. And I, I lost like a hundred pounds and like nobody really noticed or like cared and they mostly were just like oh my god you, you're doing great you're using oh my god you're, you're using your pain to help you lose weight because like i i was really fat as a kid uh-huh. <laughs> like really overweight yeah. and then just like losing all of that weight because like i just like stopped eating 
Dude, I fucking hate that. I feel like losing or gaining a significant amount of weight is one of the main indicators that something's not right. Like in a really short amount of time. Yeah. I'm assuming it was a short amount of time. Yeah, it was really short. And like the same thing happened also like when when Fee passed away. And that was mostly from anxiety, though, because like with just the grieving, I just couldn't eat. And I also lost about like 50 or 60 pounds, like right after he passed and po- people were mostly like, Oh my God, girl, you look great. Like you do you yes, blow up. And I'm like, I wish one of you had the balls to tell me or ask me what was wrong. That is just infuriating to me. And it says a lot about the, amount of like progress we still have to make when it comes to weight and what you're expected like societal views of weight yes absolutely fucked up it's very frustrating and then just like to have like my pain be like reduced to that like one thing that i was doing to cope with it was the Mm -hmm. absolute worst jesus uh so you were 14 when he got diagnosed that's a hard age in and of itself you're going through a lot of mental changes you're kind of becoming your own person but you're still like a quote-unquote kid but you're not like an adult yeah Do you, um i can imagine this kind of set things at an accelerated rate of craziness for lack I- of a better word for sure and i was starting my it was in the spring of my first year of high school So I just remember like immediately just not giving a shit. Like my grades just completely went in the trash can. Like my GPA went to absolute crap. Um, I remember my sophomore year, I signed up for like AP European history because like people told me to. And I just like failed that so badly and got like a one on the AP Europe. Oh my God. That's kind of impressive, actually. I know. I've never heard of anyone getting a one. I was like, I could have just put my name on there and just gotten the same exact score. Why did I even try? Oh. Did, was there anyone who kind of noticed things weren't right with you? Because I know your mom was kind of out of it and your dad obviously was going through it. To be honest, I really did not have any adults in my life that were really looking out for me other than teachers. Like I had some good teachers in my high school that like looked out for me and like they knew that something was going on at home and like they knew that like my mom for lack of better words was like a wackadoo and like was not quite <laughs> all the way there um but I really didn't have like an adult role model in that sense to like help me with like processing that grief and like modeling like good coping mechanisms for how to talk about what was happening because even like my dad couldn't talk about what was happening to him like he he mm-hmm. couldn't even talk about it was any sort of therapy recommended for your family, either individual therapy or family therapy or anything like that? Not really at the time that I can remember, to be quite honest. And I just, I remember feeling so like detached from it all that even at the time, if it was offered to me, I don't think I would have taken it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, that makes sense. I do remember when I was like 15 years old, you know, in typical 15 year old fashion, um, I started dating someone who was 20. So yeah, you know, and, and of course nobody noticed. Um, so I dated him for like three years 
And I mostly just dated him because he had a car. <laughs> And no one noticed. And no one noticed. Um, his um, his, so his name was Corey, but his own parents were terrified of the fact that I was fifteen. But they really liked me, and they mostly like looked out for me and like made sure I like ate food and like did my homework and stuff. <laughs> I don't know how to react to that. <laughs> yeah, oh I kind of God. forgot about that. For, like, I remember Corey, but I kind of forgot about his parents, though. Like, I would when I would. So, like, when my dad died, I like didn't stay at home anymore. I just like it. It was a bummer, for lack of better words. It was a big bummer, obviously. <laughs> but um, you could say that. Yeah. So, um, my dad opted for like um home hospice to pass at home. And so just being in my house, it just reminded me that like my dad died here. So I was like, I don't want to be here. See ya. So like, I just wanted to go anywhere else. So I would yeah. just spend time at like Corey's house and like go to school. So like Corey's parents would like drop me off at school. And then I would just like go back to Corey's house and like stay there for like days and days and days. And then like occasionally go back home and be like, hi mom. And she'd be like, hi. And she like, wouldn't care that I was gone for days. That's wild. I'm telling you, I could have like dropped out and nobody would have noticed. But you did graduate eventually, I, right? I did. Yes. Thank God. <laughs> and this is this is a bit of a tangent, but um, do you think that your own childhood experiences kind of influenced you to help children as an adult? I definitely think that overall I'm more of a nurturer and that's because of what I went through as a kid and knowing that I wasn't nurtured enough and like when I was like a little little kid I definitely was nurtured like I'd say until I was like six or seven like I definitely had like my emotional needs met but after that it was like no yeah so um just knowing that sense of like having like the the like the floor fall out from under you like I know that feeling like from multiple points in my life and it sucks Mm -hmm. it's fucking terrible and whether you're like an 11 year old kid or like a 26 year old, like it's never easy to get through it. And I really like being that support for a lot of kids, like in my classroom, because a lot of kids that I do work with are like low income. They live in temporary housing, they're food insecure and things like that. And I really do yeah. like working with kids like that. Yeah, I think it, it can really help when the teacher has been through it themselves. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, none of my teachers ever told me a lot of details about their early life, you know, for obvious reasons. But I think I could always tell when they could empathize on that level. And it's comforting. Yeah, because it it, it definitely takes a lot of empathy to be a good teacher. And I've unfortunately met a lot of teachers that don't have that quality. But I had to work my ass off to get through college because like after my dad died, um, like we had to sell my house. Like my mom couldn't go back to work. Like my mom never went to college. Um, She couldn't like go get a job. My dad basically had to spend the money he saved for me and my brother to go to college on his cancer treatment. That's just devastating on so many levels. I mean, by the grace of God, my brother was able to go to college and graduate. He went to USC in Los Angeles and I went to University of Maryland um, and I worked like three jobs. Like I was a writing tutor. I also did like um, other tutoring on the side. I would just do like any sort of like odd jobs that I could do to like be able to like pay my rent and like eat food. (laughs) Well, that that's interesting because I think a lot of 
kids in college are, you know, if they're in college, there is a likelihood that they're in a place of privilege, right? And I feel like you kind of were disadvantaged in a number of ways. Like you had experienced death at such a young age. And then also you had that financial insecurity. You had to work your way through college. Did you find that it was really hard to connect with people because they couldn't relate to those things? Absolutely. I did find people that were in like a similar sort of way where they were like, oh, like my parents won't give me spending money. I have to get a job. And I'm like, well, that blows. But I was like on the opposite end where I'm like, if I don't work enough hours I can't eat this one so it wasn't quite the exact same thing but I also when I was in college I was really sort of in denial about I guess like my where I was at Hmm. where were you at like I wanted to have like the typical college experience I wanted to like you know like live in a dorm like have a best friend, like, uh, mm-hmm. like go do like all the typical college stuff. So I also, I joined a sorority as one does, you know, for the typical college experience. <laughs> totally fucking makes sense. In retrospect, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> Looking back, I'm also just like, that was like quite a left turn for me, but all right. But even like, you know, being in a sorority and talking to a lot of people that, I would go as far as to say have almost experienced a little to no adversity in their life or anything yeah. that I have experienced has been immediately rectified by somebody else. And like, that is such a blessing for those people. Yeah, and of course. I, I like, I'm happy for them. Like I've met some like wonderful people that have like some amazing, like, you know, safety nets, but I will say like back then I was really jealous of those people and I couldn't relate to them at all. And that really put up a barrier between me and them for a lot of them. Yeah. because I just, I couldn't relate to them because I was almost like jealous of them for like having a normal family and like not being as like emotionally scarred as I was. Oh my God. Yes. I can relate to that so much. Like I'm the oldest of seven and my parents went bankrupt in my early teens. And so like I went to a private Christian school for the first two years out of the house. Um, That's a whole other story, but a lot of, you know, sheltered rich kids and it's not their fault for not having the experience. Like I can't blame them for having parents who can afford to send them there who, you know, who love them and don't want them to struggle. Like I say that now, but back then, like you, I was really salty about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I kind of also hated myself for being salty about it because I knew that I was just putting up that barrier from like making a deeper connection with them when yeah. I could have made a deeper connection. And I even do that still now as like a 30 year old where like, even when like I try to date somebody and I know this mm. is such a bad habit, but I'm just like, how broken are you? I need to know like, yes. how <laughs> real talk. Okay. But also I think it's not a bad thing to want to be with someone with relatable life experiences. Yeah, that's very true. Like you can only get so close to people that you don't have much in common with. And that's not a bad thing about either of you. It's just, it's harder to relate. Mm-hmm. Because like, if they don't have like, even like some context to connect to it, it's like, how do you even try to approach a lot of this? Like, especially for me, like with having lost a partner, I also like with having tried to like date since then, because this February will be four years since he passed. I struggle sometimes with like how to share that with like somebody that I've been dating where I'm like, when do I tell them this? Like, how do I tell them this? Should I tell them this? (laughs) 
That is insane to me, and I definitely want to talk about that. But let's catch up the story. So you are in college, you're in a sorority. Uh, when you graduated, what year was that? I graduated um, with my bachelor's in 2013. And at that point, were you happy with your college experience? Like, how were you doing mentally at the time? I was mentally awful. Okay. (laughs) So I loved college when I was in it, even though like I was tortured the entire time. But having every second of my day micromanaged gave me a feeling of purpose. And it distracted me from a lot of the grief and the trauma that I needed to process and that I was just delaying processing from like losing my dad, losing my childhood home losing the like mother role figure that I really wanted to have in my life. So when I graduated, it was kind of like a big, huge brick in the face where I was like, Oh shit, I need to actually like figure something out right now. So my brother is my full biological brother. Um, He's about a year and a half older than me. And then I have an older half sister she is like almost 50 now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she was full siblings with my older half brother that passed away. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, me and my brother, John, so the full brother, um, we actually graduated college the same year because he took an extra year in college. So it kind of worked out in that way. So he was living in Los Angeles and he moved back to Maryland because he was like, I don't like Los Angeles. Fuck this place. (laughs) Understandable. (laughs) Yeah, it was not the vibe. So he moved back to Maryland and then I was living in my like college apartment slash house. And I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. So me and him both moved into um, the house that my sister was in and there were so many people living in that house, like my nephew. And there was like one of my sister's friends was living there. And it was like a lot of people in a tiny space. And it just like, it just made me so depressed. I can only imagine the dynamics that are at play in that house. Yeah. And so my brother was spending like every day looking for jobs and he studied like engineering. So I was like, you're going to actually find a job. And I had like my little bachelor's degree in like linguistics, Russian and rhetoric. So I'm <laughs> like, I'm not going to find shit. So I got a job at Chipotle. And within like two days, I was like, this is it. I'm going to kill myself. Like, I can't do this. Dude, I worked at Starbucks for seven years, so I can relate. I still, to this day, I have so much respect for people that work in like the food service industry. And like my sister was a waitress for like most of her life. Like, I don't know how people do it. I I think everyone needs to at some point in order to gain that level of empathy. I only survived there for like three weeks. Until like, so (laughs) I I got in trouble during one of like the evening shifts because I use too much rice. It's pretty serious. Yeah. So apparently the manager was like, we usually go through four bags of rice in an evening shift, but tonight we went through five bags of rice. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh, okay. And then the manager was like, why do you think this is? And like me being an (laughs) asshole and not wanting to work there anyway, I was like, well, probably because you guys didn't train me. (laughs) So I don't know how much rice to do. Shots fired. I was just like, (laughs) fed the fuck up. And I'm just like, you know what? I would probably be doing this correctly if y'all showed me how to, but you literally just like threw me in front of a grill full of chicken and told me to do something. So I'm doing something. Oh my my God. That's amazing. I'm like getting PTSD right now, even just thinking about it. (laughs) Well, okay. As much as I want to talk about rice, let's move on. Um, 
At what point did you start thinking about moving to New York? So about like a week after um, like I quit slash got fired slash I definitely quit slash might have got fired. <laughs> from it's fine. I got an offer from um, this really small nonprofit, which um, is part of AmeriCorps called um, City Year which is like they have different branches in like Los Angeles and Boston and New York and like in like big cities. And it's like a, like a teaching assistant kind of position. So I got a job offer to go work in DC and like work in like a classroom in an elementary school in Southeast DC. So I was like, you know what, this shit is better than whatever the fuck is waiting for me in this town in Bumblefuck, Maryland. So I, sold like a bunch of random shit, put together all my money. I actually moved back to my college town that I just moved out of. (laughs) And I was like, I'm back bitches. And (laughs) I commuted like an hour each way to work in DC. And I spent that year working in a third grade classroom. Everything about what you just said sounds nightmarish because I've lived in DC and that traffic is no joke. Yeah. So I, I was living in um, College Park and I took the green line from College Park, like all the way down to like, what's it called? It's like basically at the end of the green line. But yeah, it's like basically just like the, the part of DC where you don't want to go alone. Say no more. And so having that experience, like it was something that I, it was a program I had applied to because I actually got into teaching through teach for America. I applied for teach for America when I was in college and they were like, bitch, no way. Like we don't want you. (laughs) And so I applied for city year and they were like, well, we'll think about it. We'll get back to you. And then like in July of 2013, they were like, okay, we have a spot for you. And I was like, okay, I'm on my way. So were you pretty jaded at the end of that year? I had a pretty good idea of what happens in a lot of like inner city schools, especially in DC. Um, I saw a lot that year. I learned a lot that year and I thankfully was able to use that experience to get into Teach for America in New York, which is how I ended up moving to New York in 2014. And I taught in South Bronx for about three years and that that school was popping that school was straight up popping like every single fucking day how so (laughs) i I don't know you said popping like i'm not sure if i should take it negatively or like positively there's so much i could say but um it was on one of the lists with the state where it was like not even like one of the worst schools in the city it was like one of the worst schools like in the state Jesus. So there were like 17 year olds in the eighth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like there was a kid who would like drive a car to school who couldn't even read. That's crazy. That type of experience. I I feel like it would either really make or break you. That first year in New York was legitimately awful. I was really homesick because I had only lived in Maryland my entire life. And so I was convinced like this was a mistake, like that first year and also going to school full time, like working on my master's degree in the evenings while also like teaching full time. I do not recommend (laughs) it is very hard. Oh my God. I don't know how you managed to survive. It was very, very difficult. And like, you have to be very good at like managing your time a lot of people just straight up would like quit 
in the middle of the year and just be like, you know what? Like, fuck this. I don't want to do it. Yeah. So it also, especially now with COVID, there's even more people that have been doing that. So like the retention, the retention rates even worse now with teacher America. That sucks. That like I'm I'm just thinking of the kids in the program t- or like in the school too. How much that would suck for like it can't help their already shitty situation yeah. to have adults popping in and out of their lives. Yeah, willy-nilly. because the schools that these people get placed at are already like high need schools. So just to have adults go in and out like it's a fucking escalator is not good for them. This is such a fascinating topic and I could talk about it for hours, but for the sake of time, why don't you tell me about meeting your fiance? Sure. So I actually met him at the end of my first year of teaching. So it was in July, um, like right between my first and second year. Um, Well, actually, no, I had met him um, when I was like 21, like in my early 20s. We actually met through a website called Something Awful what yeah yeah wait what i need more information um do you know something awful no um so it's like worse than reddit i want to say it's it's a pretty like it's like a joke website it's really stupid it's run by like really like bald old men i want to say i may or may not be pulling it up on my phone right now (laughs) of course um i actually started using something awful through the pedophile i was dating when i was 15. (gasps) So everything connects hashtag. Oh my God. <laughs> so there was a thread on something awful for people that had AIM screen names. Like, Oh, I love AIM. I miss AIM, but um, me too. So it was like for a thread for people to post their screen names. Like I'm bored. Come talk to me. So I posted my screen name, like back in like 2011, I was like on my way to go to Russia actually. Cause I studied, um, in the summer of 2011, I went to Russia to do like some like teaching and shit like that. And my mom and I got in like a fight and she was like, you can't go to Russia. And I was like, bitch, I'm paying for this. Like, I'm going to fucking go to Russia. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so I like posted my screen name cause I was up late and I was like upset. So, um, he messaged me. And so he was actually living in the UK. And so for me, it was like three in the morning. And for him, it was like eight in the morning. And so he was talking to me and like calming me down and stuff. And that was like the very first time we talked. Hello, friends. It's Christina again. That wraps up part one of my interview with Eli. Tune in next time to hear part two, where she really gets into some heartbreaking stuff. And we talk about the lessons she learned along the way. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to support Pickles and Vodka, you can give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Pickles and Vodka Podcast. If you could relate to anything at all we talked about today, or you just want to say hi, email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at picklesandvodkapodcast. Stay safe and have a good week. Bye.